Welcome to Kelly Dry's Full Spectrum Podcast, bringing together thought leaders in the technology, media, and telecommunications industries to discuss legal issues that are expected to impact today's organizations and tomorrow's marketplace. Kelly Dry Full Spectrum is produced twice monthly, and show notes are available at www.kellydryfullspectrum.com. For more in-depth commentary, head to our blog, comlawmonitor.com. All links are in the show notes. This podcast is produced by the Kelly Dry Communications Practice Group. Welcome. I'm Steve Augustino, a partner in the Communications Practice Group of Kelly Dry and Warren. It is my pleasure to be here with you today for our next installment of our monthly series examining developments and trends in FCC enforcement. This episode discusses cases from July through the first week in August of 2016. Before we discuss the specific cases, I want to provide a little context. July was a surprisingly busy month for enforcement, bucking the customary view that the summertime in Washington is a slow period. The Enforcement Bureau, including its field offices, released 29 items in the time period. Most of these were small items, but seven were significant enough that the Bureau listed them in its headlines section on its homepage. That's a pretty full month of activity. And that's not all the Bureau is working on. The FCC's most recent items on circulation list contains 12 items from the Enforcement Bureau, all cryptically labeled Enforcement Bureau Order. That's the typical description given to enforcement items on this list, and it leaves the public wondering who and what are the targets and topics of the items. I suspect that some of this activity is motivated by the Bureau attempting to complete investigations before the presidential election, which always brings change in commission personnel and leadership. So time is limited for this Enforcement Bureau. In this episode, I've selected five items to discuss. Let's jump right in. First, AT&T E-rate enforcement. On July 27, 2016, the Enforcement Bureau released a notice of apparent liability to Bell South Telecommunications, Inc., doing business as AT&T Southeast for violations of the lowest corresponding price requirement of the FCC's E-rate rules. The commission found that AT&T had failed to offer the lowest price to two school districts in Florida and proposed a fine of slightly more than $100,000 for the violations. Surprisingly, in the nearly 20 years of the E-rate program, this is the first FCC-proposed fine for a violation of the lowest corresponding price requirement. It is a move that I've been predicting since the E-rate modernization order in 2014, which had emphasized the requirements of the LCP rule. As background, the LCP rule requires E-rate service providers to offer schools and libraries services at rates less than the amounts charged for similar services to other parties. The FCC explained that this rule incorporates rates offered to similarly situated non-residential customers. The requirement is a legal cousin, if you will, of Section 202A, which prohibits common carriers from engaging in an unjust or unreasonable discrimination for or in connection with like communication services. Notably, however, the LCP rule differs from Section 202 in several ways. First, it requires that schools or libraries receive the lowest price for similar service, not just that it receive a similar price. It also requires that the service provider affirmatively offer this rate, that is, the school need not request it or negotiate it. And third, the FCC stated that it would not be permissible 
for a service provider to argue that there are no similarly situated non-residential customers to compare the rate to. In this instance, the commission found that AT&T had failed to offer the lowest corresponding price to two school districts in Florida. It is difficult to follow the FCC's analysis completely due to the heavy redactions of AT&T rates and pricing strategies that appear in the public version of the NAL. Nevertheless, what is instructive from this order um, is the FCC's general approach. First, the FCC limited the analysis to in-state customers. It warned in the order, however, that that was not necessarily what it would follow in subsequent orders, that it could potentially compare rates across states in future orders. Second, the FCC compared the rates AT&T charged to several alternatives that were offered in AT&T plans. It compared the rates, which generally were month-to-month rates from the AT&T guidebook, to rates that were available under a one-year term plan. The commission found that the schools had asked, in in essence, for that one-year term implicitly by seeking service for the entire E-rate year. It also compared the rates to rates that the schools qualified for under a statewide contract, even though the schools did not purchase under that contract and were not billed under that contract. Nevertheless, for LCP purposes, the FCC found these rates comparable. Third, the FCC compared the AT&T rates to rates that AT&T offered to other business customers in the state. It attained a list of contracts from AT&T for those business customers, and it compared those rates to the rates that were concluded in the offers to these two school districts. It found in this instance that sometimes the rates offered to the school districts were significantly higher than the rates charged uh, to these comparable business customers. In addition, in a comment that should be heeded carefully by E-rate providers everywhere, the Commission suggested that AT&T violated the rules because its policies did not examine corresponding prices or did not do so adequately. That is, separate and apart from the actual price charged, the FCC suggested that AT&T failed to show that it had analyzed corresponding prices at the time it was offering service to the school districts. In a warning to the industry as a whole, the NAL asserts, quote, compliance with the LCP requirement necessarily requires an ongoing real-time process that evaluates the rates offered and charged for services provided to or requested by E-rate applicants with the rates to other similarly situated customers, end quote. That is, let's go back through that again. It warned that compliance requires an ongoing real-time process to evaluate your compliance with the rule itself. AT&T's process failures, as much as its outcome in pricing, seem to trouble the commission. As a side note, both Commissioners Pye and O'Reilly dissented from the NAL, which is somewhat unusual for enforcement items. Only Commissioner Pye issued a statement explaining his dissent, in which he criticized the NAL for being beyond the one-year statute of limitations. I should also note that AT&T released a statement when the NAL was released, stating that it disputed the NAL's conclusions and that it intended to contest the proposed fine. So the facts may vary from what is described in the NAL, but for my purpose, that doesn't matter. The insight here into the FCC's approach is what is significant. E-rate providers would be well-served to review this order carefully and compare AT&T's practices as alleged with their, their own practices. Finally, 
The NAL contains a provision that I noted last month was becoming increasingly common in the Wheeler FCC. In addition to proposing a fine and requiring response to that proposed fine, the commission ordered AT&T to provide a report to the FCC within 30 days. In this instance, the report had to identify all non-residential customers who were similarly situated to the two school districts, had to describe how AT&T intends to update its internal procedure to ensure that sales agents offer only LCP-compliant prices, and third, how it intends to identify the similarly situated customers for any given school or library customer in the future. The report must be accompanied by detailed factual statements with appropriate documentation and affidavits to support the AT&T contentions. So this report in and of itself could be quite substantial. Secondly, I want to move to another AT&T order, this one involving cramming. On August 8th, the Enforcement Bureau released the largest of its actions covered in the covered time period. It announced a consent decree with AT&T for billing unauthorized services on its wireline telephone bills, in other words, cramming. The FCC describes the settlement as providing $7.75 million in relief, with the majority of that being refunds to affected customers. AT&T agrees to pay a civil penalty of $950,000 as part of the settlement. This case continues and extends the principle adopted in the PSMS settlements of last year, in which the FCC holds a billing telephone company, AT&T in this instance, responsible for charges billed on the telephone bill on behalf of third-party entities. The theory of this liability is rooted in Section 201B of the Communications Act and is another example of the FCC's principle-based rather than rule-based enforcement that has become a hallmark of this commission under Chairman Wheeler. In this instance, the services that were billed were directory assistance services the commission alleges that consumers either never received or never ordered. AT&T was faulted for the third party's actions, principally due to an alleged failure to properly oversee the third party. Specifically, the description of the investigation contained in this consent decree states that AT&T never required proof from the third parties that they obtained customer authorizations to be billed for the service, and that AT&T ignored a number of red flags that the charges were unauthorized principle among these red flags was the assertion that the third parties submitted charges for a significant number of consumer accounts that were non-existent or unbillable. AT&T, again, according to the description, quote, did not consider unbillable numbers to be an indicator for identifying cramming, end quote. Clearly, the FCC believed it should have considered such instances as an indicator of cramming. The consent decree contains a compliance plan and other requirements that have now become customary. However, the compliance plan again is AT&T specific and notably contains a pledge that with the exception of billing AT&T affiliated third-party charges, AT&T would phase out third-party billing on its wireline telephone bills. This provision furthers a policy objective that the FCC considered but rejected in its most recent truth in billing order. Such regulation by enforcement rather than by rulemaking is disturbing. Our third order for this episode is an unusual one. On July 22nd, the FCC released an order admonishing Momentum Telecom for failing to pay Universal Service Fund assessments. Such an admonishment is extremely rare outside the broadcast context. In fact, in the last 10 years, I could find only 10 instances of admonishments issued to non-broadcasters. 
Three of those involved the marketing of radio frequency equipment, and two involved both a proposed fine and an admonishment for related conduct conducted outside the time period. So the momentum admonishment is quite rare. But for the admonishment, the order would be a fairly typical example of USF enforcement by the FCC. Momentum is accused of failing to pay invoices issued by USAC to assess universal service contributions on the company. Typically, the FCC issues a fine for such failures, and it calculates that fine using a treble damages component that is equal to three times the amount of unpaid USF. But here, momentum is not fined. It is only admonished for failing to make the payment. The reason is simple when re reading the order. Momentum Telecom rectified the USF deficiency in July of 2015, just days more than the one-year period prior to the release of this order. Purely by coincidence, since I don't represent the company in this case, I became aware of this order in June when the FCC mistakenly released more information than it customarily releases for Enforcement Bureau items. At the time the order initially was presented to the Commission, before the statute of limitations, it was presented as a notice of apparent liability, in other words, as a fine for Momentum Telecom. However, it appears that in the review process, concerns were raised, perhaps over the continuing violation theory that typically applies to unpaid USF. So instead of being an NEL, the order was released a few days after the statute of limitations ran and was released as an admonishment. Momentum, in many ways, ducked a uh, potential significant fine. My fourth order here is TowerStream Corporation. Uh, this order is also unusual, but in a slightly different way. TowerStream Corporation agreed to a consent decree for operating wireless facilities without a license and for causing interference to FAA weather radar systems. The company demonstrated an inability to pay any proposed fines, and thus the settlement amount here was significantly less than what it might otherwise have been. In fact, it was reduced to $40,000. However, the consent decree suspends an additional penalty of $162,000 in the case. And the consent decree states that in the event of a default by Tower Stream here, the additional penalty amount would become due as well. So this is one of the first, if not the first, FCC settlements that I've seen that employs this suspended penalty approach. Finally, for this episode, I want to highlight an enforcement action involving caller ID spoofing. On August 2nd, the Enforcement Bureau issued a notice of apparent liability to two individuals for violations of the Truth and Caller ID Act of 2009. It proposed a fine of $25,000 to each individual. The two individuals are alleged to have conspired to manipulate caller ID information in order to place calls to harass the ex-wife of one of the two individuals. The National Network to End Domestic Violence had referred this case to the FCC as part of its caseload, so clearly this was not the usual fact pattern for FCC enforcement. Notably, this is the first enforcement action involving the Truth and Caller ID Act. The violations of that act are particularly hard to prove because the act requires proof of intent to defraud, to cause harm, or to wrongfully obtain something of value by spoofing the caller ID information. Here, the Enforcement Bureau concluded that spoofing was done with an intent to cause harm by stalking or harassing the recipient of the calls, the ex-wife. Such actions were identified by the FCC as included within the type of harm encompassed by the statute, but it is truly noteworthy that the FCC based enforcement on this type of action. 
is not ordinarily intervening in domestic disputes like this situation. It does make me wonder how often the FCC will wade into this area in future enforcement issues. Such issues could easily overwhelm the FCC's enforcement resources were others to follow suit and begin filing complaints with the FCC alleging telephone harassment via caller ID spoofing. That's it for this episode. Check back with us next month for another discussion of recent releases by the FCC's Enforcement Bureau. Thank you very much. The views and ideas expressed on this program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views or ideas held by Kelly Dry and Warren LLP, its staff, or management.